ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. It's the question that's on everyone's mind. How do you live a good life? How much do work, health, relationships matter? What about happiness, meaning, money, and love? What if you're alone or anxious, ill or in pain? These are the questions we explore weekly on the top-ranked Good Life Project podcast, hosted by me, award-winning author, four-time industry founder, and perpetual seeker, Jonathan Fields. Every week, I sit down with world-renowned experts, iconic writers, and researchers, and while everyone from Olympic gold medalists to world-shaking activists, A-list celebs, musicians, and more, all with a single goal, to help understand what it truly takes to live a good life and to feel a little less alone along the way. Listen to the Good Life Project podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. Hello, listeners. I'm Amy McKinnon, national security reporter at Foreign Policy and your host of Foreign Policy Playlist. Each week, we help you make sense of the crazy number of podcasts out there by recommending one podcast from somewhere around the world. This week, I'm featuring the first episode of season two of Heat of the Moment, a podcast by our own FP Studios and the Climate Investment Funds. In this 10-week series, journalist John Sutter takes listeners on a journey that features everyday people who have found new ways to fight back against the climate crisis. In just a moment, we're going to play the first episode. But first, I sat down to talk to John about the series and about the power of grassroots storytelling about the climate crisis. Thank you so much for joining us on FP Playlist and congrats on an incredible second season of Heat of the Moment. What was it like working on the second season? You know, take me behind the curtain and and give me a sense of how that went. Yeah, and, and thank you for having me. I really appreciate that and appreciate the opportunity to talk about this. I'm a person who's reported in various ways on the climate crisis for like a, a, a while now, like well, you know, more than a decade, certainly. And I can get personally like sort of overwhelmed by the magnitude of, of what's happening by, you know, every scientific report that comes out is just like, this is more intense than we thought. The timelines are shorter. I spend a lot of time in various parts of the world where the impacts of climate change have been felt for quite some time now. And there are like pretty intense, you know, consequences for that. And so recording this season of Heat of the Moment was like incredibly refreshing and inspiring for me in a way. Uh, Again, as someone who can like sink in that the heaviness and the magnitude of this, there are people all over the world who have solutions in their hands and are pushing for change. I think it's been true that we've had the technology that we need to essentially fix the climate crisis for quite some time now, a big part of that being, you know, renewable energy sources instead of fossil fuels. It's just really nice to talk with people who are in, you know, various ways and various capacities, really like pushing with all their might to try to get us to that new world that doesn't rely on fossil fuels and that isn't junking up the atmosphere and making everything more dangerous. So, you know, that looks like a lot of different things in a lot of different places. One of the first episodes is a is a man in Bangladesh who has been thinking really since the 80s about sea level rise and the fact that Bangladesh is such a low-lying delta country and a large percentage of its land area could be displaced and is being displaced by rising seas, much less the strengthening storms that are happening. 
you know, like, again, heavy, heavy predictions and, and consequences, existential s- stuff that people are wrestling with there. And yet he's an incredible optimist and has found ways to push for different warning systems, alert systems, different evacuation centers, like essentially like, you know, Bangladesh has done a lot of things to adapt to these very difficult truths that we're all confronting. And I found that like incredibly inspiring. And I think there's a lot that other nations all around the world can learn from a story like that and choosing instead of recoiling from like these scary predictions and pretending it's not true or just like, you know, sinking into despair, but saying like, no, this is happening. We're going to do everything we can to stop it from being as bad as it, as it could be by reducing emissions. And we're also going to do the really hard thing, which is change the way we're living now, knowing what we know about how things are going. You know, as someone who's covered this for a very long time and in, in real depth, I mean, do you think that that kind of storytelling can be a way to get around the overwhelm instead of focusing well, I mean, you know, the big reports and the big predictions are obviously hugely important, but telling more of the stories of things being done at the grassroots about what everybody can do in their daily lives or what people can do within their communities to kind of collectively help solve this problem. Yeah, I do think that that is a, a problem that all climate storytellers face, right, is the the despair factor, right? The, on, on the one hand, there's this like extreme disinformation campaign that's been well-funded and gone on for decades to try to like make the science seem unsure when it's very much not and hasn't been for, you know, decades and decades now. So that's one, you know, risk and pitfall that you're dealing with is some people want to dismiss this outright. (laughs) On the other hand, if you really internalize it, I think there's a lot of like climate anxiety, like climate despair, like a fear of the future and like this sort of like decline narrative that is really hard to deal with if you internalize it. And, And I talk to especially like a lot of young people who really, really struggle with that. And I do think and antidote, and I think there are many, is to include solutions in the coverage and to say something that just is true but doesn't get said out loud all that often, which is like, we have the solutions at hand. What the science is calling for is, you know, a radical remake of the economy, like having CO2 emissions in the next like 10 years and getting to net zero by mid-century. Those maybe sound abstract, but it's like, an economy that functions on clean energy and not on fossil fuels is like the heart of that. And that is a big global switch that requires like all this collaboration from countries that don't always like each other and and everyone to agree on something that has been, like I said, intentionally confused by the industry that doesn't want to change. So knowing that there are solutions that they can be scaled, I think that you have to hold both these things in your hands at the same time. The other part of that is that like, I don't put this on individuals. Like I think governments and industry are to blame for this crisis. We can't, you and me changing our light bulbs, like driving a different car, like those things do matter, I think, in that they connect us to this massive global issue, but it is, it does really require system change. But it's individual people who go about like, you know, creating and nudging that, that system to move in such a big way. And so some of the people that we're talking to for season two are at levels of, you know, diplomacy, like internationally or within the U.S. military or in ocean farming and ocean systems, doing things at at like various scales, I think, to try to, again, push towards that like sort of decarbonized zero carbon world. And that's what really inspires me. It's less like me 
John in my life or Amy in your life, like I, I like I bike today. I do I do think that 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 matters, but it's going to take more than that. And and people all around the world sort of realizing that the systems of power and finance are, are really what needs to change in order for us to truly get back on track towards like a safer atmosphere and planet. So we're speaking just days before the start of COP26. I mean, what are you looking for to come out of that? Yeah, so COP26, in case you know people haven't been following that, is the just the latest international discussion that's been going on really since the 90s in some ways to try to you know decarbonize the global economy. And um, it's it's following up on the Paris Agreement, which was signed in 2015, uh, and made these pledges that you know we're going to keep the world well below two degrees of warming, which is a heavy lift. So I'm looking for a couple things. I think the U.S. is weakened and it's like stance coming into COP26 because of all of the difficulties of getting federal climate legislation passed and like disagreement about, you know, a clean energy standard. And I think that it's hard for the Biden administration to come in saying we're doing everything we can when this country isn't. So I'm looking at how the rest of the world is going to react to that and how destabilizing that could be. Um, I'm also looking for like the flow of money, right? Like there has been a lot of damages that have taken place all around the world, but particularly in like poorer countries that are less equipped to deal with this crisis and then have done less to cause it, frankly. You know, things like floods and storms and wildfires, those things are costly in terms of lives, but also like infrastructure and, and money. And there's been this promise that the richer countries have made for a long time now to put $100 billion towards offsetting those damages. And I, I, I think that it is a huge deal whether that actually comes through. I think it's like a big thing for like symbolic importance as well as, as just it actually is a real is a real problem. So those are two things that I'll, I'm watching. That was John Sutter. And here now is episode two of season two of Heat of the Moment. What developing countries can teach the world about climate resiliency. COVID-19 might be the headline event, but the International Red Cross is warning that climate change poses a bigger threat. It's now calling for the world to react with the same level of urgency to both crises. But for many countries, especially low-lying developing nations and islands, those challenges are already too real. Floods have become a big problem in Kampala. Sarah Nandudu leads the National Slum Dwellers Federation of Uganda. She knows that people in poorer areas of Kampala, the same situation was also Uganda's capital, along Entebbe Road, face a terrible and persistent reality: flooding. When you look clearly, what is the cause of this flooding? You realize that it is the way we handle our waste in communities. Piles of plastics and other degradable rubbish. People drink water in plastic bottles and throw in drainage channels. Systems triggering backflow and flooding in the city. So now we know that while we are doing the work to transform our lives from waste, we are at the same time averting the effects of climate change. This past year perhaps offered the biggest challenge yet for adapting to new climate realities, on top of the COVID lockdowns across the globe. Nandudu realized that travel restrictions mean that now more than ever, her volunteers in the slums would have to be leaders in helping to make sure that vital health and safety information flowed to those who needed it most. When COVID came, People started understanding that, okay, I think we need everyone on board 
using community radios and engaging the youth to move because using our sanitation units in these settlements, we were able to put up uh, materials, teaching materials to communities. Before even the government could come in, we were the first at the front. And my only hope is that in the future, even without such diseases, people will understand that we need communities on board at every aspect of life. From Foreign Policy and the Climate Investment Funds, you're listening to Heat of the Moment, a podcast that looks at solutions to the climate crisis. Today, we're exploring stories like this one from Uganda about people in developing countries who are trying to adapt to a warming world. And as if that's not hard enough, they're doing this amid the COVID-19 pandemic. Our featured guest today is Dr. Salimul Hook. He leads the International Center for Climate Change and Development based in Bangladesh. Sometimes it's the countries that have had to face crises more frequently that have developed the most resilience. Take Bangladesh, for example. It's home to 165 million people, all of whom live in an area that's about the size of Iowa. Its density is comparable to megacities like Hong Kong or Singapore. The country is also low-lying, which Hook says makes it extremely vulnerable to the impacts of climate change from flooding to cyclones and even droughts and heat waves. Bangladesh often is reduced by the international media to simply being a victim of climate change. Yet, perhaps because of these intense threats, the country also has emerged as a leader in preparing for extreme weather and flooding. Potentially, in the path of the problem, can become a victim to be better prepared, to know what to do when it happens or before it, when they get the warnings, prepare themselves. Uh, You know, just a, a few months ago, we saw flash floods in Germany. And then even in the United States, you had Hurricane Ida hit Louisiana and then go all the way up to New Jersey and and New York, and quite a few people lost their lives as well. That kind of thing doesn't happen in Bangladesh anymore. We don't lose lives. We get affected, and it does a lot of damage. But human life lost is just unpreparedness, people not knowing what to do, not being prepared to deal with it. You know, you lost more than 1,000 people in New Orleans from Hurricane Katrina when everybody saw it coming. It wasn't as if they didn't know it was coming. Uh, They just got hit. And incidentally, it wasn't the rich people in New Orleans. It was the poor people in the Ninth Ward. Uh, And that's a truism everywhere. The most vulnerable people are usually the poorest people in any given society or any location. In Bangladesh, we don't lose people like that anymore. So I want to come back to the work that you've done, like sort of on the ground in terms of preparing for the changes that are happening and dealing with them. And I'm wondering what that's been like in the last year and a half during the COVID-19 pandemic. If you see those challenges as like sort of compounding, like the climate crisis plus COVID is makes both worse, or if there have been any sort of unexpected strategies that have come out of, you know, trying to figure out how to deal with COVID. I'm just wondering if you see any link between those two huge issues. Absolutely. There's a very clear link between the COVID crisis and the climate crisis. I'll speak from my own perspective, which has been working with the most vulnerable communities in the most vulnerable countries, preparing them to deal with climate change. And then we got hit by COVID-19. And as it happens, it's the same vulnerable communities that were vulnerable to climate that also were vulnerable to COVID in two senses. Firstly, they were vulnerable to the virus infection itself, particularly poor people living in the slums of major cities in the developing countries. And secondly, they also were susceptible to the economic impacts of the lockdown measures that were taken to deal with it. They were, you know, people who 
had to get out to earn their daily bread and were confined to their homes and weren't able to earn a living. And so the COVID crisis hit exactly the same people that we had been working with on the climate change front. In fact, uh, we turned our work to helping them deal with COVID uh, at that time for the last year and a half. We've been talking to them and working with them to enhance their ability. Going forward, the big lessons for me in terms of dealing with the pandemic and the climate change a global emergency is the fact that these are global problems that no country, no matter how rich, can protect itself from. You can't build a wall around yourself and say that you can be safe. You cannot be safe. And, uh, you know, we we have been demonstrated that very, very clearly. And we still are with, you know, vaccines not being uh, given to the rest of the world and, you know, only provided to the rich countries. We fail to learn the lesson that we should have learned. The second important lesson that came out was the need to listen to the science. And we saw this demonstrated very clearly by different leaders of different countries who either did or didn't listen to the scientists and took actions appropriately. It's very clear. Leaders who took science seriously and took actions according to the science saved lives. Leaders who didn't were responsible for that loss of life. How does that idea of, of, you know, following the science apply to climate, right? Like what, what would you want to say to world leaders about that issue? Well, science, the climate change problem globally was identified originally by the scientists. The various successive reports of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change over the years. We now have the sixth assessment report coming out and they've been telling leaders what to do. So it's not as if any of this is new. It's all old. But leaders have not been listening or they have listened, but they haven't done enough or they've promised to do things and they haven't done what they promised. This is all we hear from our so-called leaders. Words, words that sound great, but so far has led to no action. We are now heading for the crisis and emergency, as uh, Greta Thunberg keeps pointing out quite rightly because of the inaction of our leaders. But they've now had 30 years of blah, 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 and where has that led us? You know, they talk. Build back better, blah, 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 green economy. Blah, 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 blah. is her assessment, and she's absolutely right. They talk, but they don't do. Coming back to Bangladesh for a minute, you know, you were involved in some of the first projections for like what percentage of the country that could be inundated as seas continued to rise. What ways do you see you know, Bangladesh being able to adapt in this level of the sea? So Bangladesh is a very low-lying delta country, and therefore we are definitely uh, vulnerable to the impacts of sea level rise and salinity. But it's a very gradual process. So it's what we call a slow emergency. The salinity is creeping up. So what we are doing is a two-phased approach to dealing with it. The first one being adapting to the conditions as they come up. And I'll give you two examples. In the dry season in Bangladesh, the sources of drinking water become saline in a large part of the coastal zone, the low-lying coastal zone. And people have to drink salty water. If you and I were to go there, it would actually taste salty. So what we have been doing now for the last number of years is everybody in the coastal zone has rooftop rainwater harvesting. Big tanks on the rooftop, they harvest rainwater during the monsoon period when we have lots of water. And then they use that for drinking purposes for the few months of the dry season 
when the other sources of water become saline and millions of people are doing that now similarly the traditional varieties of rice are not able to cope with the rising salinity of the seawater coming into the land and most of our farmers still grow rice our scientists have been breeding salt tolerant varieties of rice and we now have well over a dozen varieties that are more saline tolerant and are being distributed and used by the farmers but ultimately even those adaptations will run out my name's kurt jaimungo and this is the theories of everything podcast the show where we bring rigor to mathematics physics and consciousness exploring grand unified theories as well as free will and god even exploring aliens with former CIA Lou Elizondo heated debates on metaphysics with Kastrup and Verveke imagine you are an organism that spans a galaxy how does the universe look to you type in theories of everything on youtube spotify itunes all platforms we won't be able to adapt forever and we will therefore then have to start thinking about people moving they won't be able to continue where they are now and so we have now what we call a second order adaptation strategy where we are thinking about enabling capacitating educating the children of the people in those areas uh, so that they don't have to end up becoming farmers and fishers like their parents but they can go to nearby towns and get educated and become doctors nurses engineers and get other professions and take their families to live with them at their own volition this is not a forced movement these are enabling people to make these decisions themselves and decide for themselves where they want to go and what they want to do these are obviously like really difficult questions about where you know someone lives and what their livelihood is like how do you approach trying to have these really hard conversations across such a wide area and what's that like you know like trying to identify like leaders in in communities across bangladesh well it's a big challenge that's for sure but i would say in bangladesh i would claim that we are far ahead of any other country in terms of the population at large understanding this issue so the level of awareness of climate change in bangladesh is very very high everybody knows about it not only do they know about the climate change problem they are now going up a very steep learning curve on how to deal with it and that depends on where you are who you are what you do it's not a one size fit all and as i said you know the farmers and the fishers and the people living in the coastal area are going up that learning curve very very fast and the key ingredient in all of this is not money it's not even technology it's in people's understanding people's willingness to take actions and change behavior and that bangladesh has in spades i would say the people of bangladesh they're very poor we're one of the poorest countries still in the world we are, although we are getting better but nevertheless we are a highly resilient people we are used to adversity adversity is not new to us and we are used to facing adversity and indeed overcoming adversity and that is the spirit in which we are now moving forward and i don't want to minimize the scale of the problem but i do want to emphasize that bangladesh is not going to let the problem defeat us we can't prevent the events from happening they're still going to do a lot of damage but we can help you not lose lives does technology have a role in sort of shaping a like a livable future in bangladesh or, or do you see that as kind of like a side issue absolutely technology is key but the ability to use technology and not just use 
a given technology that is given to you, but adapt it to make it useful for yourself is the real key. And I'll give you two indicators. In Bangladesh, we have near universal mobile phone coverage. Everybody in Bangladesh, every adult and many kids also have mobile phones. And a large number of them not only have mobile phones, they have smartphones as well. And the smartphone technology actually is a leapfrogging technology. They don't even have to be able to read and write. All they need to do is to, you know, put their finger on an icon and then they can watch video and they can enter the whole world. And I mentioned the cyclone warning systems. Cyclone warnings are so sophisticated. People watch the satellite on their smartphone and they can figure out how many hours they have to get to the shelter before the cyclone is going to come and hit them. And that's knowledge that is usable by the citizen themselves. And that, to me, is the strength of this. It's knowledge combined with citizens knowing what to do with that knowledge. That is the power that we are able to unleash. Another good example in Bangladesh, we have the biggest solar home systems in the world. Six million households providing solar light. These are poor households, by the way, in rural areas, most of them. Providing light to people completely done by private sector entrepreneurs who are providing these solar panels and batteries and teaching people how to use them. And people are using them effectively and they have now light at night, which they didn't used to have before. And incidentally, the biggest reason for doing it and the biggest outcome of that uh, having solar light at night is the children can do their homework, which they couldn't do before when they had to use a kerosene lamp, which the light replaces. And the children now can do homework, they can study, they can do better in school. And so there are win-win benefits out of this kind of investment. So these are, you know, just a few of the many, many stories that can be told about uh, Bangladeshis going forward, both incrementally and in a, in a leapfrogging manner as well. These are things that we will be able to, when we go to scale, will make huge differences. You seem like someone who's fairly optimistic in the face of a lot of pretty stark realities. And what, I'm wondering where that hope comes from, like what keeps you you motivated? Yes, I admit to being a super optimist, <laughs> despite uh, what things might look like around. And I don't want to be unrealistic, but I do think my optimism has a basis in reality as well. And the biggest reality in which I put my optimism is our people, and particularly our young people. Now, the next generation, is where I'm putting my faith. I, you know, I teach in a university. My students are the best and the brightest, no less than any student in Harvard or Yale or in the US. They have the ability to learn, absorb, and solve problems as much as any others anywhere in the world. And with the current state of internet technology and the global world, they don't have to travel to Oxford and Harvard to study. They can do it out of Dhaka and Bangladesh and learn as well as those and what are they learning? They are learning in the forefront of the country that's dealing with climate change, how to tackle climate change. And that knowledge of how to tackle climate change is going to become a global good. You are going to ask them to come and help you do that. And so in my estimation, the foundation is there for Bangladesh to become a global leader in tackling climate change, not just in our own country, but exporting that knowledge to other countries, particularly vulnerable to other developing countries, South Knowledge Exchange, but even the North will be able to learn from uh, Bangladesh on how to deal with the impacts of climate change. It's going to happen. It's inevitable. You know, we, we have already passed into a climate change world. The past is no longer telling us what's going to happen in the future. The future is brand new. That was Salim al 
director of the International Center for Climate Change and Development based in Bangladesh. He's one of the brave people who is facing an unjust and harsh reality. The world is becoming more dangerous because of fossil fuel pollution. The rich countries like China and the U.S. must do more to stop polluting the atmosphere. But instead of turning away from the changes that are happening, Hook is trying to adapt to them and make life safer. That's true for Sarah Nandudu in Uganda as well. You also want to learn from what others are doing so that uh, we have a collective effort to fight these climate change effects. So we'd also be happy to listen to others and we may learn from them. In coming weeks, we'll talk with other people who are making big changes to try to adapt to a warming climate, including a climate migrant who fled wildfires in California for the relative safety of Minnesota. We'll also go to the heart of American coal country to hear from an environmentalist who's working to end the coal era and slow climate change while also trying to protect workers. But first, next week on the show, how a kelp and oyster farmer in Connecticut is trying to get us to rethink what it means to have sustainable food systems. If you ask the ocean this really simple question, you're like, okay, what does it make sense to grow? The ocean says to you, why don't you grow things that you don't have to feed and don't swim away? That's next week on Heat of the Moment. Heat of the Moment is a partnership between foreign policy and the climate investment funds. Our production staff includes Rosie Julin, Rob Sachs, Scott Andrews, Dan Efron, Laura Rossbrow-Tellum, Claudia Tatey, and Zamone Perez. The Climate Investment Funds is a nonpartisan champion of climate action. Political views and opinions expressed in the series do not necessarily represent those of the Climate Investment Funds, foreign policy, or their partners. Interested in learning more in the run-up to COP26? We're offering free access to a foreign policy analytics team briefing called Firm Zero Emission Power. Normally, that's only available to FP Insider subscribers, but you can read the report for free by submitting your email. Go to foreignpolicy.com slash COP26 to learn more. Thank you for listening. And that was Heat of the Moment. What developing countries can teach the world about climate resiliency from foreign policy and the climate investment funds. My thanks to John and the podcast team for sharing this new series with us. That's all for Farm Policy Playlist. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe. And if you want to suggest a great podcast, please email us at podcasts at farmpolicy.com. This show is hosted by me, Amy McKinnon, and is produced by Zimone Perez, Rob Sachs, and Rosie Julin. Our executive producer of podcasts is Dan Efron. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hi, I'm Anna Ferris, and I have this podcast fittingly titled Anna Ferris is Unqualified, where each week a different celebrity and I attempt to give relationship and dating advice. Recent co-hosts have included Matthew McConaughey. You got somebody you care about. You lost track of them. Go find out. Margaret Cho. Vacation sex is always irresistible. Gwyneth Paltrow. I could make it all about them and not have to focus on my own problems. <laughs> and Seth Rogen. <laughs> so if you're wondering what your favorite celebrity or I would do in your situation, just listen and subscribe to Anna Ferris is Unqualified. Free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. 
ACAST.com.